Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. Can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying. You must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Kevin. Good morning to everyone. All right, let me just say a word of prayer before we start. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Okay, so welcome again to City Church. And um, as Femi has said, we are a church in our vision. Trying, We are looking to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews the city of Lagos. And by saying that, we're not saying that we are going to be the ones. We are hoping to be a part of people that actually do that. And in trying to see what kind of um, vision that can look like, that kind of renewal for the city, you have to ask yourself the question, how does that even happen? Let's take a little look at where we are now. We are, if I can be frank, in a state of, um, how can I choose the word, We're not in a very, very desirable state as a country, but let me even start with the city. Even if we take away the economy and how difficult things are, we've never been at the point, I think, that maybe some people say the people that that knew about these things in the 79 to 83, but I doubt that we've been at a time where our politics has been this divisive. Corruption in many parts of the government, our health crisis continues, increased immorality, 
however you want to define what immorality is. There's brutality witnessed in people's marriages, and there's ever-widening inequality. Or talk about the inhumane working environment. So when we think about a renewal, what we are looking at is, well, how can all of these things be changed? Now, those look like very hard times, don't they? But it's worse. Why is it worse? Because, as we all know, we live in a time when the peak, well, we're at the peak of Christianity spread in this nation. That doesn't make sense. Say with me, that doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. If Christianity is truly what Christianity says it's meant to be, if we are having an increased population of people who are Christians, and we are having a moral decadence and our culture is, in a sense, going south, there seems to be a disconnect somewhere. Now, can we find any parallels in history? I think I dare say one. Let me take you to 18th century Britain. Someone once said there that it had collapsed, morality and religion had collapsed to a degree that was never known before in any Christian country. And like, really? That sounds very, very, um, you know, over the top. Well, some of the reasons were, let me give you about six of them that are written here. You had one, the brutalization of slaves, the indignity of labor, and inhumane worker treatment. Two, if you take the realm of politics, you had nepotism. There was bribery, especially at elections. Mm. Laws against the poor, as you could be hung for pickpocketing. In fact, they had these things called hanging shows. People were pickpocketing, doing all these small things, but obviously the politicians, what happened to them? Three, you had a situation where the health crisis was so bad that three out of four children did not make it to live five years. Newly born babies were abandoned and left perishing in the streets. The ones who lived were sent to beg on the streets by very, very hard-hearted nurses. What about drinking, number four? It was called the gin age. In fact, at this point, poisonous, fiery gin outrivaled beer as the national beverage. Think of the ruin that brought to many people's lives. Or take number five, gambling, which now became a national obsession, ruining thousands upon thousands. Immorality was like a sport. In fact, it was not so hard to see people, the word would be, the biblical word would be fornication, on the village green. In broad daylight. And what's the word? You had people who actually were auctioning their wives at cattle markets. Finally, thieves and robbers abound the such that someone once said, one is forced to travel at noon as if one were going to battle. Now, as bad as all of the things I've said are, what was worse is that this was happening in a supposedly Christian country. At the root of it, in the article I read, was a wealth-obsessed, corrupt clergy. A clergy that had been so distracted by filling their pockets, going after money, such that when you had a rise of what you call the Enlightenment, secular humanism rising up with very, very sophisticated explanations for how life can exist without a God, these guys were so distracted, they were not in the Bible, and they weren't defended enough, and they weren't equipped well enough to defend the onslaught of this secularism. They had lost Christian truth. And guess what? When Christian truth is lost, Christian morality also has to give way. The danger here is what you can call nominalism. 
that is professing Christianity in name alone. It was in this moral climate that the man John Wesley was born into. Now he and one of his contemporaries, George Whitfield, at the end of all of this thing, witnessed a kind of Christian renaissance. And they went with one message and one message alone. Simple. You must be born again. Now, no doubt, they were inspired by the, uh, if you want, the conversation that came in read for us from the book of John, chapter 3, 1, 2, 15, 16. And this fits into why we are going through this series that we started, how many weeks ago now? Three weeks ago, in the book of John. Because our knowledge of Jesus Christ matters very much for even if you want to talk about some lofty goals, like we are talking about catalyzing a gospel-centered movement that renews the city of Lagos. Well, but they saw it in their time, and probably we can, and we should be inspired by it in our time. And so, we want to consider this topic of a new life under these three headings. One, the need for the new birth. Two, the nature of the new birth. And three, the foundation of the new birth. The need for the new birth, the nature of the new birth, and the foundation of the new birth. Now, when we come to this part of the scripture, you notice that we've jumped John chapter 2. Sorry, if we're going to have to get through the book of John in 19, uh, um, in 19 sermons, then we have to inevitably jump some. But what happens is at this point, as you see in verse 2, when Nicodemus comes to meet Jesus, he says, look, we know that a teacher comes from God, for no one can perform the signs that you're doing. Now, in chapter 2, Jesus had just performed the first signs as he now enters into his ministry, right? He's, he goes for a wedding in, in Cana, in Galilee, and he turns water into wine like we sang today. Now, for many people, that is the excuse for which you can keep having a bowl while drinking. If you need your excuse, you've got it. Jesus turned water into wine. And besides, it was very, very good wine, they said. John 2, 11. But also, he continued with many signs as well, John 2, 23. And that's why Nicodemus can come and say, that there's something about you here that we know. Now, who is Nicodemus? Nicodemus is, as it's told us to us in the text, a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he had this uh, title, Israel's teacher, or the teacher of Israel. In other words, if he's a member of the Jewish ruling council, he is obviously someone of considerable stature politically and economically. There were about seven of, 70 of them called the Sanhedrin. Now, but if he's a Pharisee, that means, he, which is basically was a conservative uh, Jewish sect at the time. So you had Judaism, you had the religion, but you had different camps. You had the Sadducees who weren't, who believed like the first five books of the Bible, they didn't care for the other parts, and they were a bit what you call liberal in some of their thinking now. They didn't believe in a resurrection. But the, the Pharisees were people who were true to the Bible. They wanted to take the Bible, what we will call the Old Testament, very seriously. They were conservative, but at this point in their history, their conservatism had taken over their biblicism. And so he was not just a person of considerable political and economic uh, 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 stature, but he was also someone of a considerable religious stature as well. Now, this is the man that comes and sees Jesus, and he's impressed by Jesus. In fact, he respects Jesus. He calls him Rabbi. That would be a name that Nicodemus himself would have been referred to, saying, Teacher. He believes Jesus is from God, 
And he believes that God is with him. Now, you would say, and we should all say, that that is not a bad endorsement of Jesus, isn't it? Now, listen, there are those, even in our culture today, who have never, probably never heard of Jesus. And there are those who doubt, they've heard of him, but they doubt if he's ever existed at all. Now, there are those who actually would give, you know, will say, yes, Jesus did exist, but they doubt all these extraordinary things that happened in his life. And then there will be those who knew he existed and actually hate what he stood for. Now, we know those people, and if you're one of those people here, we'll say, welcome. Now, we're not against you, obviously. We don't think you're correct, but we're not against you. But, and you are, we, you, everyone is entitled to their own opinion. These are not the people I really want to address today because I don't think these are the people that Jesus is addressing. There are some people, though, who are not antagonistic towards Jesus. In fact, respect Jesus, revere Jesus in some way, and yet do not see who he truly came for. You see, when Nicodemus comes and says, we see that you're a man that is sent from God. You know, you can't do all these things if God isn't with you. He's not just saying that. He's actually he's saying, making that statement and implicit in that, he's asking a question. What are we really to make of you? Because the Jews had certain kinds of expectations as people who are under the Roman Empire this time. And so they're wondering, eh, are you this person or are you not that person? Remember in the, book of, um, in the first chapter that we looked at, that people sent from Jerusalem, sent... Um, and some of their, their, you know, their people to go, Pharisees, to go and find out who Jesus really is. And Nicodemus is also at that point. Who really is this man? Now, Jesus isn't fooled by this. Because you should not make the mistake that Nicodemus's collegiality is the same thing as true belief. Because Jesus doesn't believe that. You see, in verse 11, Jesus says that you did not accept our testimony. Verse 12, he said, in fact, you don't believe. He is friendly with Jesus, but Jesus is calling it out for what it is. You really don't believe in me. In fact, you really don't accept my testimony. With Nicodemus, what we have is that the ultimate insider, in truth, is actually on the outside. And can I say that you can be an insider and still not be a believer? Hear me very well. It is possible for you to have been in church all your life. It is possible for you to have gone to Sunday school. If you were like me, a couple of, well, not a couple of, maybe 20 years ago, you knew everything. What is it to be a Christian? Someone is coming to preach to you and say, I've given my life to Jesus, right? I have, um, has Jesus become your personal Lord and Savior? It becomes a lingo. Now, when you think about Nigeria here, or Lagos, let me give you, just in the, south, in the southwest here, through after the 19th century and, and uh, coming into earlier 20th century, we had, you know, the influx of a lot of the Baptists and Yankans set up churches all around. By the time you get to the 30s and the 50s, really what we call the Orthodox churches are the biggest and, um, uh, uh, churches all around. You have them planted everywhere. The problem eventually starts between the 30s to 50s is that those churches have probably lost why they existed. And so you start having this orthodox nominalism where going to church, sitting down, going to have the communion served to you, 
was all that mattered. It didn't matter whether you had two wives or three wives. It didn't matter whether you were beating them. All those things didn't matter. Why? You were a man of good standing. Your family bought a particular pew in the church. And on Thanksgiving, you guys danced from beginning to end. And this is what Christianity was about. Why? Because you were baptized as you were a child. Now, obviously, that had to give way. And you had what you call in the 60s the SU Revival. And you were coming with a more, a greater focus on the Bible, on personal holiness. But as that continued, all of a sudden, that study and that holiness turned into legalism. And they became badges of honor. And then evangelism became how many crowns, how many stars you could put on your head so that you can go to heaven. And that, in some sense, also got turned up by the charismatic renewal in the early 70s through the campuses. And here we then have boldness to actually witness more, more of the miraculous now coming in. But this wasn't also as sophisticated as, probably biblically sophisticated, as the SU revival. Now, I dare say that we've not had any since that. That's that widespread. And so, after 40 years of this kind of renewal or, 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 or revival that has come, the tail ends of it. Where are we now? Well, to be nominal before was to just go to a particular kind of orthodox church and you really didn't believe anything. And now we're at the point where everybody is a Christian because everybody knows how to lift their hands up. Everybody knows how to sing uh, Nathaniel Bassi's songs. Everybody is quite fervent when it comes to prayer. You know how to fast seven days or 20 days. And yet, we are at this point where we are so filled with fervency and the culture hasn't changed. There's a disconnect. Because we have mistaken fervency to mean spiritual vitality. They're not the same thing. I dare say, I haven't listened even this week to two prominent Christian leaders who said that the best way for Christians, and I say this with no glee at all, to react to the southern cardinal killings is what? If you see any northerner or any Fulani person around you, do you know what you should do? Take his head off. What is worse about that? There has been no considerable outcry of that kind of language in the Christian world. And then Jesus comes to the scene. And do you know what he think, you think Jesus is going to tell Nicodemus, like people like us, very simple. You must be born again. Because without this, you will not see the kingdom of God. This is why Jesus is, Nicodemus is trying to figure out who he is. And even though Nicodemus doesn't ask a question, he's saying, you think you see something, you actually haven't seen anything. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Now, this is a bit scandalous. Because what Jesus is saying, both in verse 3 and verse 5, he said, you cannot see the kingdom, neither can you enter in the kingdom. You cannot participate in the kingdom if you are not born again. This issue about the kingdom of God. Now, at this point, the Jews, as I said, are under Roman occupation. And they have these prophecies, particularly in the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all that, that they are looking for the end of the world, the kingdom of God, the renewal of all things, where there will be a resurrection from the dead of people who have gone before, and they will partake in this renewed new heavens and the new earth. Now, but for that to happen, because the promises had always been that God himself will come, God will somehow 
bring judgment against the enemies and bring salvation for his people. For that to happen, and obviously at Jerusalem would be the top, is Isaiah chapter 2. The mountain of the Lord's house shall be above the mountain of all other, of all, above all other mountains and hills. So they are looking for that. They believe that they as Jews, because these promises were given to them, will certainly partake of it, of course. Now, you know, there will be some Jews that wouldn't, but those will be people whose lives are morally scandalous, like tax collectors who are traitors and like prostitutes. But if you reasonably kept the law of Moses, then as a Jew, you will certainly be there. Now, one person they knew was going to certainly be there was a man who was Israel's teacher, a man who was part of the Sanhedrin. I mean, of course, we are not even trying to ask, will he be there? Of course he's going to be part of the kingdom of God. He knows all these things. At this point, Nicodemus would have been able to memorize the whole of the Old Testament. It's crazy to think that someone that would epitomize all of these things will not know what it took to enter into the kingdom of God, let alone not participate in it. Familiarity breeds contempt. When you think you know something so much, you eventually don't really know it. In the words of Johnny Mitchell, you don't know what you've got until it's gone. In verse 10, Jesus is showing Nicodemus that what you think you understood, you who should be Israel's teacher, you have not understood. Now, I know this may seem harsh, and be it far from me to tell anyone who says that they are Christians that you are not. I mean, you know, we've drank the Kool-Aid of Western uh, individualism. How dare you tell me that I'm wrong? You can believe what you want. I can believe what I want. Even though they are both opposing each other, you cannot say that anyone is wrong, which is silly, because if you have a particular opinion of yourself with regards to Christianity, you're actually saying somebody is right or somebody isn't, is wrong. Now, the other way some others have taken this is to say, well, we've already had the Esri revival and charismatic revival, and the emphasis there is that you must be born again. But we are going, I mean, we can see what's happening in the culture, so that makes sense that to be born again is not enough. We need something more. And so we come up with so many different doctrines. But can I ask you, what could be more than participation in the kingdom of God? I don't think Jesus will be saying there is more. I think Jesus will be saying, this is why I have come. What Jesus is saying, first of all, with regards to the kingdom of God, is that the Jewish understanding about it was wrong. They expected that the kingdom of God and the Messiah that brings the kingdom will come at once. And Jesus is saying the kingdom comes twice. Just because, as well, the Messiah himself comes twice. I am the one. I have brought in the kingdom. The kingdom is now. But the kingdom is still going to come in the future. But guess what? You will not participate in the future kingdom if you are not in the kingdom now. How can I be in the kingdom now? You must be born again. So what is being born again all about? You're bringing it back to me. Last time I heard it was 15 years ago. You're trying to say that I don't really know what it is. But I'm not really saying that, but at the same time, I'm saying it's worth looking at again. What is it all about? Well, the good thing is that Nicodemus himself wants to know why, what it is all about. So that takes me to the second point. If you look at verse 4, 
Nicodemus asks, how can? It's the first of his how can questions. The second one comes in verse 9. But he asks, how can someone be born when they are old? Now, this is a bit of an incredulous question. It comes with a bit of scorn. The problem is, on the one hand, Jesus is already challenging Nicodemus. He's saying you cannot, well, we believe that you are these teachers. God is somehow with you and all that. And just said you can't be born again except you enter the kingdom. He's not really heard this born again language. He knows about the kingdom of God. But he's not really heard this born again language. I know when we were young, uh, when I was young, I used to think this guy is incredibly thick in the head. How could he then say this issue of can someone be born when they are old? Jesus is obviously not talking like that. And look, don't forget, Nicodemus is Israel's teacher. He's not thick in the head. But at the same time, he doesn't really understand. Jesus is introducing a new category, so supposedly, that he's not understood. And so, because he's already, Jesus is already saying, I don't think you're part of it, he decides to go into a crass, literal interpretation of it so that maybe Jesus can talk a bit more. Jesus is telling him, I don't really think you're part of it. And I dare say Jesus is asking some of us, do you really think you are? Do you believe what Jesus is saying about you or you're trying to argue it away? And so in verses 6 and 7, Jesus starts to answer, well, Nicodemus, this isn't that literal. If light gives birth to light, what I'm saying is this isn't, it's not human uh, 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 conception, therefore it's not human procreation. Flesh gives birth to flesh. We understand that. And that is on that basis that we understand that spirit gives birth to spirit. Better translation is spirit gives birth to spirit. Not so much the Holy Spirit gives birth. But this is a spiritual rebirth. But in verse 7 and 10, Jesus is saying that you should know about this. You should, Nicodemus, as Israel's teacher, know about this. Why is he saying that? It's because this reference in verse 5 where he says that to be born again or to be born from above is actually has something to do with water and spirit. This isn't spirit baptism and water baptism. The mere fact that Jesus is telling Nicodemus you should know is one indication. I say it's not spirit, it's not two different kinds of birth because the of, if you look at it where it says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. The of controls the water and spirit. So it's saying they are from the same source. So it's a water spirit source. This thing, Nicodemus, you should know about it. And in other words, just is saying, because it's in your Bible. Now, the best reference to this comes in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 36. In Ezekiel 36, God is speaking to Israel who are in exile. And, God is, and they are wondering, is this thing ever going to be restored? And God starts telling them, in connection with Jeremiah 31, about a new covenant and what he will do with this new covenant. And in verse 25 of Ezekiel 36, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you you, your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Jesus is saying 
that what I'm bringing is not a mere kind of improvement, keep these laws and keep these laws. No. What I am coming with and what comes with the kingdom is the total transformation of the human being. This isn't some kind of, you know, if you've not, you not had your bath for three days and you're not looking too good and there's no water, what do you do? You people that went to boarding school, rub and uh, does that remove the reality? No. Or some people just spray perfume up and down there. In fact, let me tell you, if you do that kind of nonsense, you smell worse. Jesus isn't saying, I'm not going to do something that just covers you from the outside. This, look, the issue of the human heart requires a change in heart. I will take out the heart of stone and give you a new heart of flesh. He's saying the issues that have to do with our impurities, our sin, require total renovation. A new kind of cleansing. In other words, Jesus is saying that the new birth leads to a new life. The spirit that is given, he says, I will give you, I will put my spirit in you, is to bring about transformation of the individual from the inside out. Now, I'm not talking about just saying to someone, you want to, you want to find the truth, look inside of you. No, the spirit comes from above and comes in us, and then the transformation works from inside out. And in verse 8, this issue of the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone that is born of the Spirit. He's saying, look, we can't, just like the wind, we don't know where the wind is coming from. Right? Forget all these easterly winds and westerly winds. Yes, we know it's coming from the west. Where is the source of it? You cannot discern it. Just like the wind, we cannot discern its source, but we cannot deny its effects. Do we know when wind is here? Do we know when a hurricane is here? He's saying, when the hurricane of the Spirit comes into a person's life, it's not, is it or not, you know the person is changed. And he's saying, the only way you can get this is that what? You must be born again. John Wesley again. John Wesley understood, his central understanding of Christianity was that individual redemption led to social regeneration. Here's part of the problem. When we get rid of Christian truth, or we marginalize it, we say, look, look, what was there? what's here? And sometimes I see this so painfully. You watch a Christian program, the person has spoken about every other thing apart from, you know, stuff that has to do with Jesus. And at the end of the day, you're smiling at the end and say, you know what, all these things are fantastic, but you can't participate of them unless you become a Christian. Now, let me tell you how to do that. Just say after me. And then the person within 10, 15 seconds says a particular prayer, which you are meant to say after him. And guess what? He says, you are now a Christian. If this is the way, the treadmill or the, the conveyor belt that has been bringing Christians all through, are you surprised by where we are? Jesus is saying, it is not going to come like we do in the manufacturing companies. You must be born again. And Wesley thought, you cannot focus just strictly on social regeneration and programs alone without transforming the hearts of people. And so that social regeneration or social changes are an inevitable byproduct and a useful piece of evidence of conversion. 
when we marginalize Christian truth and are more interested in certain things, you know what happens? We are spraying perfumes on people who actually need to take a bath. You see, far too many non-Christians are unimpressed by Christians. My wife tells me of a story where, you know, someone came um, to preach while she was in school, and the person knew the person that was coming to preach and has, had observed him for a while. I said, look, he told her, I said, come, let me tell you something. Me or me, I am not a Christian. I know I'm not a Christian. He said, that guy that is preaching there, like Noah ourselves, that guy is not a Christian. Far too many times it is people who are non-Christians that call us to live the tenets of our Christian faith. Why? Because they themselves will see that there is little evidence for our Christianity. No matter sometimes, unfortunately, we want to even prove it so much. We have this kind of aggressive, can't you see that I love God, right? You'll be reading your Bible whilst your boss has given you something to be doing at work. Or you come in and you think you want to sanctify the atmosphere and so you start speaking in tongues at work. You must be born again. Because the truth is, if you are really transformed from the inside and coming out to the outside, you know what happens? You will be like Nicodemus. You don't necessarily want to see people to see you around Jesus, but when push comes to shove, there's something about him that would attract you to him. And it's the same thing. They may not be saying it, but the eyes of the world are watching us. When they have a big problem, guess who they call? But if you are very much like them, and sometimes they even think that they are better than you, do you think they will call you? It's not about how often, as I said before, how often we go to church. Even though going to church is important. But it's why do you go? How can we test? Do you cheat at work? Do you exercise restraint in drinking? Do you despise the poor? Do you pick and choose what parts of the Bible to believe and not? Do you look down on non-Christians or have compassion on them? Do you think your good deeds approve you before God? Do you depend on a prayer you uttered a long time ago as the basis for your faith? Are you terribly unkind with your spouse? Do you read the Bible or depend on dreams? You must be born again. Why? Because the effects are undeniable even though we do not know where the source is. And so finally, Nicodemus has heard the law. Verse 9, he asks, how can these things be? Or how can this be? And we're asking, how can I be born again? Third point. Now, obviously, Nicodemus' teaching, his understanding of, uh, and this is the limitation of his understanding of, of who Jesus is has been exposed. It's so funny that Nicodemus says that he believes that Jesus was come from God in verse 2. And in verse 13, what does Jesus say? He says, I am actually come from God. The way Nicodemus understood that Jesus was come from God was obviously flawed was obviously inadequate, that for Jesus to remind him that he actually has come from God. But in verse 11 and verse 12, Jesus has already shown him that he neither accepts his testimony nor believes in him. 
You see, sometimes the true teachings, we run away from Jesus because the true teachings of what Jesus says, actually, we don't want to hear it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not into bashing people or all these things. But at the same time, you can so want to be so nice with the scriptures that you actually leave people where they are. And Jesus, because of love, as we'll see, doesn't want us to be where we are. Now, if I left it here, at this part of the conversation, unfortunately, some of us don't wait to hear the remainder of the story. The good thing is, Nicodemus waits till the end. So Jesus now says, look, Nicodemus, you probably have achieved so many things in your life, and you probably have read so much, and you think you understand the scriptures, but you see, my own authority is greater than yours because I am actually come from God. My own existence has been way before this. This is the authority and the ground of Jesus' teaching. And so what does Jesus do? He takes him back to the Old Testament once again because the Bible is where God has revealed himself. And it takes him to this story in Numbers 21, verse 4 to 9. I don't know if I can read everything because of time. This is the children of Israel. They are going in the wilderness to the promised land after they've been delivered from Egypt. And then they started to speak to Moses because they didn't like how the wilderness was. Verse 5, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Now this murmuring angered God. And so God sent venomous snakes, verse 6, among them. They beat the people and many of the Israelites died. God judged them. Why did God judge them with snakes? Because they, what they were saying was as venomous as the snakes that were coming. God is saying that in their hearts, in their souls, their, their souls, their hearts were poisonous. It was destroying their souls, and out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so God judged them in likewise manner of the rebellion that they were expressing. Then the people in verse 7 came to Moses and said, We have sinned, we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray the Lord will take the snakes from, away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Verse 8, The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is beaten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then when anyone was beaten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. This is one of the strangest stories you can find, right? So many snakes everywhere. Snakes, snakes, everywhere. Snakes were biting. Snakes were saving. But why did you just turn him to this strange story? Well, you had a rebellious people, and then you had God's judgment, and then you had repentance, and then you had a mediator, and then you had God's provision, and then you had salvation. When the people looked to the snake that was up there, they lived. Now, why did God put a snake to be the thing that saved them? Well, it's very simple. What was judging them, if they looked in faith to God's provision, became their salvation. They looked to the object of their judgment, and that became their salvation. And what was the proof of their salvation? Remember, it's the people that were beaten, who are already destined to die, that actually lived. In other words, when they were beaten, if they looked up, they received not the same life, but new life. And Jesus says, likewise, in verse 15, the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Now, through the book of John, you have this thing about the Son of Man lifted up, lifted up. I have to run through it. But in some sense, the lifting up, like you see in Isaiah chapter 6, is an exaltation. 
And Jesus always said the way he was going to go back, because he came from heaven, he was going to go back to heaven being exalted, being lifted up. But at the same time, in John chapter 12, verse 32 to 33, and when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. Now in verse 16, we have the most famous verse of all time, probably 20th century. And again, it's because of some of these revivals. For God, in this manner, just as the, the snake was lifted up, God in this manner gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, just like the Israelites were, but will then have eternal life. Now notice the parallels. There are many parallels that are going on here. I wish we had time to go through it. Everything that God does in saving us, even if you are someone who has always been a Christian, is rooted in his love. That's why he saved the Israelites. But notice this. When Jesus is put on a cross, he's exalted in some sense, and yet he becomes the object of our judgment. Who should be on the cross? Or put it better. Who should receive eternal damnation is those who have rebelled against God. And yet he says, if you look on that cross, where your judgment lies, you will be saved. You will receive new life. You will be born again. In other words, it is not enough for you to have heard about Jesus. You have to have heard about Jesus in the way Jesus has disclosed the love of God. Remember we said he was the word, the one who reveals God. And how we see God revealed is that he is a God of love. A God who doesn't love the lovely. He loves the rebellious. Why? Why does he love you and I? The rebellious people, we don't know. But we just love the fact that he loves us anyway. And it says, stop living a life that is venomous to you. And live the life I've called you to. The only way you will do this. You can't help yourself. Look to the Son who is lifted up. You will not perish, but now you would have new life. This new life of the kingdom of God. Today, living that kingdom life, as I've said, if you take John Wesley's own um, um, formula, that that individual redemption leads to social regeneration. At the close of the 18th century, some of the things that happened after Wesley had preached in the length and breadth of England. Let me give you some of them written in short form. Both the Church of England and other churches outside the Church of England now had, from a point when the evangelical, that is people who believed in the Bible, the evangelical clergy were, like, were less than 10%, all of a sudden, by the close of that 18th century, they were the ones that were dominating, both in the, in, in, the, in, the, um, in the Church of England and outside there. There was renewal in the church. Then in the 19th century, the century after that, you can trace a direct line from this revival that came to social emancipators, people like Shaftesbury, people like uh, William Wilberforce, people who abolished slavery, that brought about industrial emancipation, prison reforms, ship safety regulations, all of these roots can be traced to what John Wesley did. Then what about the booming of world missions? When we hear names like 
I mean, also, so first of all, the people started evangelizing much more, but then societies, world missionary societies were birthed. So some of them, like the Baptist Missionary Society, the London Missionary Society, the Wesleyan, the Wesleyan Missionary Society, and he wait for this, the Church Missionary Society. Do you know what that is? CMS. All could be traced to the preaching of this man. In fact, morality now played a bigger role in politics. They started to identify civilized nations as the ones who had better morals governing their state policy, administration, and economic policy. And finally, what was happening, the, the, the situation I described to you about all the evils that were happening at the, at, uh, in the beginning of the 18th century, everybody knew was only going to end in one way at the close of the 18th century. There had to be a bloody revolution. France, who had pushed God to the side and had fully embraced the uh, Enlightenment, France had their bloody revolution. And every credible historian says this. The only reason why Britain did not have a bloody revolution at the end, at the end of the 18th century was largely due to the most popular man at his death in the whole of Britain, John Wesley. He did all this because he said one thing and one thing alone. You must be born again. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do not utter these words lightly. We do not say these things standing in judgment on anyone as though we are better than anyone's. For that will contradict exactly what you are saying here. But we do identify that in many ways we've become familiar with the Lord Jesus Christ. In many ways we give ourselves a pass on the back, a pat on the back. In many ways we even when we are truly saved, we are not seeing this transformation of the spirit because we grieve the spirit, we quench the spirit. Many times we do not see the boldness to proclaim the kingdom of God, to tell people that without this kingdom, you will perish. And though we are aching, aching, like we're to see change in our societies, we know that because he set his eyes on the eternal future, that was why he could have relevance in the present. We look, Lord, for the renewal of our city. But we pray, O oh God, that you will cause and wake up many of us who would identify ourselves as Christians and make us, O oh Lord, to look upon the cross where he was lifted up so that we can be born again. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.